Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Ecstatic. I'm ecstatic to be back. That's the nothing personal word of the day, January 6th, 2020. I didn't realize how much I missed everyone over the last week or so of not having shows. I can tell you this. I tried to unplug. It did not work. I'm not ashamed of it. I can't do it. I am an addict. I'm addicted to you. I'm addicted to the audience. I'm addicted to the information, to the back and forth that we have. I love it. I was thinking the entire time I was away about what show I would do and should I do something special on on the first day back. And I realized what I really missed was the routine of every single day going through all the different things that went on. This show is packed. Wait till you hear what we're going to start with. You're not going to be surprised, of course, because like always... We are starting with the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys continue to give me little tiny things every single day to talk about. Whether I'm away for a week, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, it doesn't matter. And Jerry Jones did not disappoint. He did two things during the break that really shocked me. The first one is he fired Jason Garrett. No, that wasn't a shock. What is amazing, after 20 years as a player and coach, he actually did not have the guts to tell Jason Garrett that he wasn't going to be back and then publicly announce the fact that he wasn't going to be back. Instead, he left Jason Garrett sort of swinging in the wind and actually not knowing whether or not he had been let go. I wonder whether he actually went into the office. I wonder if he knew enough to start stealing post-it notes or paper clips or Dallas Cowboy pads with the stars on it. Meanwhile, Jerry Jones and his son Stephen were interviewing head coaches. We thought there'd be a laundry list. There were articles upon articles of all the possible coaches there could be. What I can't understand is, if you're Jerry Jones, why do you do it that way? Why not stand up like you always do? You take responsibility for everything, except you stay completely silent until the Philadelphia Eagles start playing a playoff game? Yes, the Eagles in your division who beat you for the division lead, and you think that announcing that, in fact, Jason Garrett will not be back during the Eagle game, that we're not going to figure out what you were doing? Jerry, you're better than that. We know exactly what you were doing. You were trying to take attention away from Philadelphia and put it onto yourself, except it was completely negative. It makes no sense to me why you'd want that sort of light cast upon you. The smart thing to do at the end of the season, just like we predicted would happen, you take the microphone, you take the stand, and you tell your fan base that you've got this. You're under control, and the first thing you're doing is you are letting Jason Garrett go, but you thank him very much for his 20 years of service. You thank him for his three playoff appearances. You tell us that he did the best he could with the players that I gave him. You say that his coaching staff worked as hard as they could, and they put together teams that they thought could have been Super Bowl contenders. And then you move on and you do an actual head coach search. 
We're going to talk about the head coaching search that resulted in the hiring of Mike McCarthy later on in the show. But I can only tell you, that wasn't exactly much of a search. We knew exactly where that was going to end. Urban Meyer was even a possibility. Is there a chance that you think Jerry would go with another college coach? How did that go with Barry Switzer or Jimmy Johnson? You'll say, hey, Super Bowls were involved. And I'll say what was also involved was an ego for a coach that was this big. My hands are really far apart. And an ego for an owner, which is this big, that's even further apart. So in order for the Cowboys to succeed, they had to bring in somebody as the coach who would be able to work well knowing that Jerry Jones is firmly in charge. But when you've got a fan base and you own the team that is worth the most money, except for a few soccer teams, the most money in professional sports, you are no longer in the asset appreciation business. You are really in the business of making sure that your asset maintains its value. And in order to do that, it's not as much about winning as you'd think. And this is the depressing part for all Cowboys fans to realize. What Jerry Jones has to do for his family and his estate and his legacy, he has to keep AT&T Stadium rolling. He has to keep revenue coming in, and he has to keep the league continuing to grow. Now, we talked about last year all the work that Jerry Jones has done for the new stadium in Los Angeles and how important he was for that. That's not a mistake that he's spending so much time on these ancillary activities. The reason is that he knows for his team, he's got to make sure that the league is buttressed by growing and growing revenues. If the, if the Dolphins, if the Cowboys make it to an NFC championship for the first time since 99, if they win a Super Bowl, if they do well with their new coach, if they win 12 games, win the division, is that going to add as much to his team as it will when the league continues to grow and grow? It can't when you know his team is worth two, three, four billion dollars already. So Jerry Jones, here is now what you do for the rest of the year. You take your head coaching search, you name a head coach, which you did today, then you stand back. Let Mike McCarthy be the man in charge. Let Mike McCarthy be the coach who always knows what it takes to win. Why did you hire Mike McCarthy? It was just announced today. People know Mike McCarthy because he was the uh, Packers coach, won a Super Bowl. Great career. He had a falling out with the Packers. Not a great 17, not a great 18. And then he got fired. Not sure how that worked in Green Bay. What's interesting is Mike McCarthy took a year off from coaching to ostensibly study new trends in the league. I loved reading that. I love it when coaches say they are studying new trends. We had managers who we would uh, interview, and they'd come in with books, books on our whole minor league system when I was with the Marlins, and we were always interviewing managers, of course. They'd have books on every player, and they'd have hot zones and cold zones for each player, and they would talk about each level of our system. They would talk about where the game is going, I never understood that because that's not how you're going to get a job to be the manager of a baseball team. The way you're going to get a job is, one, the price has to be right, and two, you have to know how to deal with an owner, and three, I have to see how you can deal with the media and with players. Beyond that, we'll let the game decisions take care of itself. So Mike McCarthy comes in having worked for a public ownership. You know the Green Bay Packers are public. There's really no face. There's no owner. There's no spokesperson. They've always had a GM. Do you think Mike McCarthy has any idea what he's in for? So let me tell you exactly how it played out. And I'm going to play the part of Jerry Jones and Mike McCarthy. 
So Jerry Jones calls Mike McCarthy. This is right after the season, maybe even during the season. I'm not convinced that he wasn't in touch with McCarthy throughout the course of the season when Jerry Jones was saying that I will not fire Jason Garrett. The reason why he wouldn't fire Garrett during the season, of course, is Mike McCarthy was never going to come in in the middle of a season that was lost. It's like a closer coming into a dirty inning in the, out of the bullpen. You always want to bring your closer in. Nobody on. No outs. New, new inning. So there's no way McCarthy's coming interim. He probably had a deal in place. Jerry Jones calls him up and says, hey, Mike, um, yeah, uh, I need to make a change. I'm not winning enough. And uh, I want to talk to you about being the coach of my team. Mike McCarthy says, listen, I'm interviewing. I interviewed with the Jets before the end of last year, before Adam Gase took the job. I've got a couple opportunities this offseason for sure, but I'm happy to listen. And then it got fun. Jerry Jones said, hey, Mike, do you want to come over and play Jenga at my house? Do you want to come over and watch a little TV? Maybe we could put on our PJs, eat some s'mores, talk some money. So Mike McCarthy said yes to the sleepover invitation by Jerry Jones. I never would have invited a potential managerial candidate for a sleepover. Number one, I don't want anyone sleeping over at my house. Number two, I don't want to think about the fact that there's some candidate who's in the guest room and I'm going to have to make sure that I triple clean the bathroom the next time a guest comes. Why not just put him in a good hotel? What would be the reason why? And then it came out because a source claims that whenever Jerry Jones gets someone in his house, he's got his guy. Well, given the fact that today's the start of the Harvey Weinstein trial, I'm going to assume those two things are not related at all. But what I am going to say is that's very strange to me that you have to get a guy to sleep in your house in order for him to be your guy. I hired a ton of managers, never once had a sleepover, never needed to. Didn't even need a 10-hour interview. You sort of get a feeling over lunch, over dinner, over just talking. But of course, you never really know somebody, they say, until you live with them. Maybe that's what Jerry's going to do differently. He said, I'm going to live with Mike McCarthy, and that's how I know that he's going to be my coach. And by the way, I'm going to give him the same 30-year, $30 million five-year deal that I gave to Jason Garrett in 2015. It's not a coincidence, I wouldn't think. It's really not a good look, in my opinion. I don't know why he would have that sleepover. I can only tell you this. Mike McCarthy, you have no idea what you just signed up for. The good news is, my guess is, you're going to make $10 million a year for three years. You will not see year four of this contract. You don't realize how tough it is to work for Jerry Jones when you have been skating by in Lambeau Field. The media scrutiny, the ownership scrutiny. Do you know what it'll be like to have the owner and GM in your office at halftime, at the end of every game, before every game, at every practice? It's very different when you answer to a group of shareholders and one GM versus when you answer to one man and that man's son. Trust me, I know these things. I was these things. What about the New England Patriots? Did anyone take pleasure in watching them lose? I guess I can say I did. 
I mean, he's the GOAT, Tom Brady. I've loved watching him win Super Bowls. I knew he didn't have a chance to win a seventh Super Bowl. I figured not having lost to the Dolphins in Week 17, that didn't matter. Playing in a wild card game at home, that didn't matter. What matters to me is the Patriots simply were not as good a team as they've been in the past. They didn't have as good players, and they didn't have as good execution. And believe me, there's only one player who is a surefire Hall of Famer. The greatest player of all time in every sport. And that player's name is Time. First name, Father. Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, but he's looking a lot like 42 to me. He's not accurate. His team doesn't score. He doesn't have the arm strength he used to have. He can pretend he has the energy with all the screaming and running around that he does. I love especially how incredibly angry he is when he rips down his chin strap when he doesn't make it on a third and seven. He takes both hands to the side of the helmet, rips it down as though, of course. And that makes sense because when you're an older player and you can't do the things you used to do, it's incredibly frustrating. I've had talks with older players about this. I've had talks with pitchers who didn't have the velocity they thought they had or the command they used to have, or basketball players. I've actually had a conversation with, uh, let's just say, a Magic Johnson, where you can't get the ball where you used to be able to when you see an opening, and then it closes, and you used to be able to thread the needle and get the ball to Worthy without a question. That's James Worthy, youngins, the Hall of Famer. So it's very tough on Brady, and I appreciate that. But what do the Patriots do now? They have an entire offseason of complete distraction. If I'm running that team, I am making a decision today. I'm not going out like Robert Kraft and saying how much I love Tom Brady and how much I can't imagine being without Tom Brady. I'm not going to be Bill Belichick and be his usual silent, grumpy self. Can you imagine living with Bill Belichick? Let's just hope he's different at home than he is on the road with the team in a press conference. He just seems like Walter Matthau to me. He just seems grumpy at all times. And he comes out and when he's asked to compliment Tom Brady, he makes sure to say how important every member of the Patriot organization is. That was very telling. I think they're ready to move on without Tom Brady because they know you have to. Don't make him be a backup. Don't pull an Eli Manning. There's no reason to give him a pillow contract like the Giants did for Eli Manning and then have him start the first few games, have the Patriots lose, and then pull him out the way the Giants did with Manning and then wait for an injury and then have Manning play another game. It's not going to work that way. Tom Brady has a chance to go out on top. He didn't win a Super Bowl. That would have been leaving at the end of last season. But he is still will go down as the greatest of all time. Why is it so hard to walk away? Because in real life, he's only 42 years old. And at 42, you've got your whole life in front of you. You may be ancient in sports terms, but in real years and terms, you have to have another chapter. You think he's going to sit at home and stare at Giselle all day every day? It's not going to happen. You think he wants to be an offensive coordinator, a college coach, a head coach? N-G-T-H, not going to happen. So Tom Brady is sitting down right now and thinking to himself, I might as well try to keep playing. I know I can start. I can be a quarterback on a 7-9 and nine team. Is that what the Patriots want? Mark my words, if Tom Brady comes back, the Patriots become a mediocre team next year. 
And I think Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick know better. They don't want to settle for mediocrity. Idiocracy. Mediocrity. Man, I've been away. Tom Brady, good season, good career. How about Tua? Tua just announced today. Tua Tungavailoa. I think I got that right. So here's what happens. He's one of the great college quarterbacks, plays for Alabama. There's something in the NFL called tanking for Tua. It became a hashtag. It became a thing. Everyone thought the Dolphins were tanking for Tua. It was quite funny, actually. The Dolphins started off 0-7. Everyone's excited they're getting Tua. Then the Dolphins start winning games, and they're worried they're not going to get Tua. And then Tua's in a game that I could argue, and I did argue with my producer, Coca. Happy New Year, Coca. Are you alive? I haven't heard a word. Coca. Nothing. It's amazing. These things are useless if you're actually not spoken to by the guy on the other side. In any case, Tua is playing in a game that I could argue he shouldn't have been in, and he gets hurt. And this isn't an ordinary injury. For those of you who don't follow college football, basically his hip came apart from the rest of his body. Picture your hip just falling out of your skin and rolling 10 yards, 10 yards down the field. That's what happened to Tua's hip. Gone. Surgery, major, I'm not talking like kidney stone stuff. I'm talking removal, sorry, Mikey, I'm talking removal of hip, put it back, and maybe there's a chance it'll be better. Well, I've got a lot of experience with baseball hips, with baseball injuries, with hips. It doesn't always end well. Very, very difficult to rehab from. So Tua had a big decision to make. He was going to go 1-1, maybe 1-2 in the draft get guaranteed 15 to $30 million, no question. Then he made a big deal about whether or not he was actually going to enter the draft. Well, here at CBS Sports HQ, we were not waiting with bated breath for his press conference today. Because if you're in this business, it wasn't even a question what he was going to do. Let's think about it. You think Tua's going to go back to Alabama to sit with Nick Saban, and only get paid under the table some scraps and some cars and some suits and some other s such trips while worrying that his hip isn't good enough and then taking the field and getting hurt and then ruining all chances to actually make a lot of money? Hmm, no chance. I want to tell you what Tua did. I want you to listen carefully to the words Tua said when he announced he was going to be eligible. A lot of the, the, the guys, you know, the general managers, the owners that I've, I've got to talk to kind of said the same thing. They, they kind of look at this injury as like a knee injury almost, although it's not, um, you know, in a way that, okay, are we going to take a chance on this guy or would he be able to, you know, possibly do a pro day before, you know, before the draft and whatnot. Tua, first of all, we just showed a clip, and there was a big Coca-Cola bottle and a Dasani bottle, so it's good that it was sponsored. That's part of all the money going to Alabama and its players. Number two, he just said that he spoke to a lot of GMs and owners. He didn't speak to one owner. Let's be clear. Number three, he said they're sort of treating it in the NFL like a knee injury. Hey, Tua, here's a surprise for you. It's not a knee injury. It's a hip injury. Totally different. Here's how this plays out. Two is not going to do a pro day. He's going to end up getting drafted in the first round, maybe even in the top five. Maybe the Dolphins get a chance to get him at number five because he will be available. Maybe they take him. But what happens is Tua will not take the field again. 
with pads until sometime next season. So whoever takes him is taking a huge chance. And that will be reflected in the draft bonus that he gets. I'm looking for Tua's bonus to be much smaller in the guarantee section. However, any amount guaranteed for him is more than he would get by going back to Alabama. That's why all the breaking news and everyone waiting with bated breath to watch this press conference, what a waste of time. You should have been outside. Go for a run. Go for a jog. Go for a swim. Do something. Of course, Tua's going to go pro and try to make money. That's the whole purpose of him being in college. And this injury is serious. And he won't know for another two to three months whether he can even play. And if he can play, he still won't be able to test that hip until he gets hit. And believe me, whoever drafts him will be holding his or her breath every time Tua gets hit. Guaranteed down, Tua is a pro. But Stephen Ross, I'm tired of him. He's the owner of the hometown team. I'm here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm in the studios at, uh, on Cypress Creek, CBS Sports HQ. Love it here. Love being around everyone, missed everyone. I just want owners, I, I want them to just be honest with you. I want them to say what's real and not what they think you want to hear. I want Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, to tell you the truth about this season. And instead, what Stephen Ross did is he actually came out and said, Tanking? Tanking? We weren't tanking? Who would ever have that as a goal? Well, Stephen Ross, here's what you did at the beginning of the season. You turned over your entire roster. Oh, but he had an answer for it. You know what he said? <laughs> this was good. Stephen Ross said, of course we turned over our roster because we had the most dead cap space. We had a bunch of underperforming veterans. I don't know whether he means Minka Fitzpatrick and Frank Gore and other all pros who were traded. Um, let's assume he didn't mean that. Let's assume he meant that we had underperforming veterans who weren't good, who led the Dolphins to no winning seasons. I can't remember the last time they won a season. And let's pretend that they didn't have a need for a quarterback. Wait a minute, they did need a quarterback. The entire purpose of what they were doing was to get the first pick in the draft. They acknowledged it. But then what happened is, somewhere along the line, they decided that they couldn't get the first pick. They realized the Cincinnati Bengals had actually done it right and have no chance to win a game. They realized the best they could do with the Redskins and the Lions and the Giants being so terrible that they were about to get the number five, number four pick in that range. So they start playing Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's right, the 37-year-old journeyman who had a great season the Dolphins went 5-4 and four in their last nine games. So now Stephen Ross has a chance to change the narrative. But to me, he's being disingenuous. Let me ask you this. If he weren't tanking from the beginning, how do you explain the 0-7 start? How do you explain the fact that the Dolphins have been so poor for so many years with some of the worst point differentials in all of football over the last four years? How do you explain the fact that they keep going through coaches and keep going through quarterbacks? How do you explain, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm sorry. I, I missed it. They weren't tanking. They were bad by accident, not on purpose. They were trying to be good, but then they were just bad, but then they kept the same front office together. 
I get it. That makes total sense to me. Steven, I get it now. Well, I'm wondering, did you actually watch the playoffs? Did you notice what happened in Tennessee? Well, Ryan Tannehill is their quarterback. People in Miami know Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill happens to be the last first-round quarterback chosen by the Dolphins. I think they're going to choose another one this year. They need to. They're not going to win anything with Fitzmagic or Rosen. Is it Rosen, Coca, who backs up Fitzmagic? I don't think they can win with either of them. So they're, they're going to go for two or maybe somebody. But Stephen Ross goes through the entire process. He's getting older. He's starting over. He believes he found his guy in Brian Flores. And then he watches Ryan Tannehill be the number one rated quarterback in the entire league last year, this last season. Ryan Tannehill was the best. So the Dolphins had him. He wasn't good enough on the Dolphins. They let him go. Then they take Rosen and Fitzmagic, Fitzpatrick, and then they're going to try to get yet another quarterback. So Tannehill leaves, he goes to Tennessee, and he finds a lot of good music in Nashville. And the music is that he's actually a good quarterback, the type of quarterback that we all thought he was when he was drafted. All of this means one thing. It was never Tannehill. It was never Fitzpatrick. It was never Gore. It was always Ross and Greer. Greer's their GM. I have nothing against Greer. I just want to know one thing. If it's the same GM who's gotten to you in this pickle, how is he going to get you out of it? You've spent all this time getting all these draft picks. Not tanking, of course. Just getting rid of bad money is what he said. A lot of bad money we got to get rid of. That was funny. Everyone's trying to get rid of bad money, Steve. So he gets rid of the bad money, gets a whole lot of picks. And then he's got the same guy making the picks. I just don't get it. I don't get any of it. Dolphins. Bad. <laughs> so bad here. We do a segment. Uh, I love this segment. And uh, we started a, a, uh, early on in the show. It's called So You Want to Talk to Samson. And I appreciate everyone who downloads this. And, and I thank you for listening to the bonus holiday episodes. Hope you enjoy them uh, as much as I enjoyed making them. So many good movies to talk about coming up. We're going to talk about the Golden Globes soon. But first this. So you download, you subscribe, give me five stars. I have no idea what it means, but please do it. There's a way to click on your podcast platform to get a five-star review. So people have been following me on Twitter at David P. Sampson. Part of the uh, word of the day was ecstatic and the fact that I couldn't unplug and I had my phone with me when I was gone and I missed all of you a lot. And people are DMing me with topic ideas. And it's really picking up. And as a matter of fact, I'm getting so many that it's hard to keep track. But keep sending because there's some nuggets in there that I love. I try to respond to as many of you as possible. So someone texted and said to me, this was a good one. I had to do it. DM, not text. Is there anything I would have done differently in either college or law school knowing what my career would become? Is there anything I would have done differently in college or law school knowing what my career would become? And that's a funny question to ask because we all look back on school and we all think about where we are in our lives and whether or not school helped in that regard. Did college help you get where you want to go? We just talked about it with Tua. Did college help Tua become a pro? Maybe, maybe not. Well, I went through college. I had no idea what I was going to do. 
and I want to tell you that story. I was, uh, I had a friend, his name was David Fishbein, and he had a brother named Jeff Fishbein. Jeff Fishbein went on to become the team psychologist for the Montreal Expos and Marlins, won a World Series with him, and he's now with the Chicago White Sox. He's had a long career as a team psychologist. And we were all together at the University of Wisconsin, and we lived in a place uh, on State Street, which is the main street, and we had fun. We had a lot of fun, and I had no idea what I'd be doing after college. I thought I had to get a job and start working. And David and Jeff Fishbein's father worked at a company, and his name is Kenny Fishbein. He lives down here in Florida, and he works at a company, and they make uh, corrugated packages. Um, they, they, they have a company, a manufacturing company that does very, very well. And I went up to Kenny Fishbein, the dad who I'd known for years because I was such good friends with the sons, and I asked him for a job. And he told me, no, I will not hire you. And I was upset. I said, why not? And he said, because you're way better than this. You're going to do more with your life. I don't want you right now out of college working at some low-level job. Go continue your education. You don't know what your career will be, but I promise you, you are bound for greatness, he said. I had a chance to thank Kenny for that years later, and Kenny remembered that advice, and it was prescient. It caused me, without knowing what I was going to do, I applied to law school. I took the LSAT. I always knew that I would prefer law school over business school, and the reason is that law school actually teaches you how to read. Business school doesn't do that. Frankly, these days, college, high school, grade school, elementary school, none of them teach you how to read. None of them teach you grammar. None of them teach you how to even write. We talked about it on other segments. People can't put together three paragraphs to make a sentence anymore. It's disgusting. But I knew law school would teach me how to read, and reading is one skill that I have used throughout my entire career, no matter what it's been. Reading comprehension used to make fun of it in high school, right? You were angry. You had to take reading comp tests. It turns out reading comprehension is a whole lot more important than calculus. It's even more important than history or science. I'm sorry to all the scientists and history professors, to all of my old teachers, but I can only tell you this. English, reading, that's where it's at. And law school teaches you to read and it teaches you to read quickly and to remember things that matter. It doesn't take a genius to read a four-page article in 10 minutes. It takes someone who knows how to read well to read it in two minutes and know more about it than the person who read the full article. The last time I read a full article or a full book was never. I don't think I've ever read a full anything because your eyes, when you read quickly, they go quickly over words concepts. You're getting the idea of what they are. But what would I have done differently? Would I have gone to work right out of college? No. Would I have gone to business school over law school? No. If you have a choice, I tell people all the time, choose law school. It will help you no matter what you do with your life, in front of the camera, behind the camera. It will make you smarter, more marketable. You will be able to make more money and be more successful, should that be your definition of success. Do I wish I'd done a few things differently? I probably wish I'd gone to more classes. I probably wish that I'd had the foresight to take a much more diverse class load. 
I took meteorology in college because I was interested in the weather and I loved it. And I didn't do that enough. I was so worried about taking economics classes, taking philosophy classes, doing things that were in my major and my minor that I didn't pay attention to my electives. And whatever electives I took, I totally blew off. Didn't even go to them. I still have nightmares about failing them and not being able to graduate. But if I had to do it again, I would do things that interested me outside of my area of expertise, outside of my major. Things that weren't gonna make me money, but were gonna give me pleasure. I spent too much time getting pleasure outside the classroom in college and law school, where there's a lot of pleasure that I left on the table. How do I make up for it now? It's pretty easy, I make up for it by reading. I read as much as I can to learn as much as I can about as many things as I can because it interests me and it makes me wistfully think back to the times I was in school. I don't think back and wish I had partied more, did that enough. I don't think back and wish I had made more friends, did that. I don't look back and wish I had done anything. I didn't go to enough football games at Wisconsin. In law school, one thing I will never, ever regret is how involved I got outside of the classroom in doing a bunch of clinics. We'll talk about that at a later episode because I got another So You Want to Talk to Samson about a specific part of law school that I don't want to talk about today but we will talk about it one of these days. But in law school, you have an opportunity to be surrounded by intellectuals, surrounded by people with a commonality of interest. Instead of just running out when I didn't have class or wanting to not be inside the school, I would have taken more time to talk with professors, to take advantage of office hours and visiting hours. My word of advice to everyone is if you have a chance to broaden your horizons, do it. If you have a chance to speak to somebody who knows more than you do, do it. You know how people say you get better at sports? You play against someone who's better than you are. If you're always playing against people where you're winning 6-0-6-0 in tennis or 21-2 in ping pong or 11-1 in basketball one-on-one, are you really getting better? Losing is what makes you better. Losing is what helps you learn. I wish I'd spent more time with all the smart people who I knew. Last night, who watched it? I watched it. So here was my day yesterday. I was definitely under the covers, in the fetal position, sucking my thumb for most of the day. I had a long week, and I knew I was coming back to do the show today. So just picture I'm sort of in the fetal position, you know, doing this a little bit. That's me sucking my thumb. And we've got a quadruple header. I started by watching a movie called Two Popes, not reviewing it. I then watched two football games back-to-back, the two wildcard games, and then followed up with the Golden Globes. I'm not going to say I didn't get out of bed. I'm just going to say I didn't have a catheter, and that's the only reason I got out of bed. So the Golden Globes start with Ricky Gervais hosting for the fifth time, and I'm going to sum up the Golden Globes for you in three minutes. I'm going to sum it up by telling you that Ricky Gervais will never host again, His jokes were funny, but so off-putting to everyone, including the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. By the way, the Golden Globes are decided by 87 movie critics from around the world. It's not done by a huge voting, it's not by popular vote, it's not fans, it's not studio execs, it's not fellow actors or actresses or directors or writers. It's actually 87 people from around the world who get together and they vote on people who they want to meet at their award show. This year, there happens to be a lot of very, very good movies for everyone to see. You know, Ricky Gervais, the first uh, joke that he talked about was uh, the limo that he took was a license plate 
the license plate was made by Felicity Huffman. Get that? Felicity Huffman's in jail making license plates. I thought it was okay. He made some comments about Ronan Farrow, the guy who does the exposés and all the sexual harassment in Hollywood. That was fine. He made a short joke to Martin Scorsese. I don't really understand why. I'm as short as Martin Scorsese, and I can fit on every ride at every amusement park. Believe me, I know this because my entire childhood I couldn't. So I didn't really get that joke. And then we started with the awards. Just remember following things. The Irishman didn't win anything. 1917 is now the front runner. Best director, Sam Mendes. Best picture. Brad Pitt is the single most good-looking man maybe ever. Salma Hayek is the most beautiful 53-year-old woman maybe ever. Marriage Story is going to have trouble winning awards, but maybe for Laura Dern as a supporting actress. Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag is a show you must see, even if you're attracted to the priest. I found it weird that people were attracted to a priest. I think it's sort of bizarre, given that priests aren't supposed to be doing that sort of stuff. But it's a good show, worth watching. And people finally caught up to me with Succession. There's one guy in this office here, his name is John. He and I have loved Succession from the beginning. And finally, it got award love. I don't know why people care that Kiernan Culkin kissed Logan Roy, Brian Cox on the lips. It wasn't that big a deal. But the show itself, it went quickly, three hours and eight minutes. You don't have to watch the show, but what you should watch is the Ellen DeGeneres and Tom Hanks acceptance speeches for the two awards that they picked up. The first award was the Lifetime Carol Burnett Award that has only been awarded one time to Carol Burnett. It went to Ellen DeGeneres. The second one is the Cecil B. DeMille Award, which goes to someone for a lifetime achievement. That went to Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks cried. Ellen DeGeneres was hysterical. When you look at the montages, go on YouTube, watch the montages of their careers. It will blow your mind. Golden Globes, I give it an 8 out of 10. Good show. And the movies, we are going to have the best time from now till the Oscars reviewing Oscar movies. I can't wait to tell you all the movies I saw over the break, as well as all the TV shows. Okay, I got to talk about this. This happened during the break. I was told by Coca, the producer, don't talk about anything from 2019. Just be current. We're, in the, we're on the 6th of January, 2020. So I took that to heart, but something happened. But it did happen in 2020. And it goes right to the heart of what I cannot tolerate. Any player who shows up his teammate, who complains publicly about his team, makes me insane and makes me want to get rid of him on the spot. Well, Kevin Love did something a few days, two days ago. Coca, was it two days, three days? He's going to fervently, fervently, feverishly Google it to get the date. Can you imagine how well he's paid? Here's what he just whispered to me. David, it happened sometime in 2020. Matt, that's not helpful to me. I want to tell the audience the exact day that this happened so they can search for it. January 4th it happened. Thank you, Matt. You get your 3% raise. <laughs> Kevin Love. Remember Kevin Love? Yeah, he won a title with LeBron James. He was good when he played for Minnesota. He then was signed to a very large contract by the Cleveland Cavaliers after LeBron left to become a Laker. 
$120 million over four years. Do the math. That is $30 million a year. For a player who by himself cannot be part of a big three, he can't be the lead of a big three, he really can't be the number two of a big three, and I would argue very, very strongly against some basketball people here that Kevin Love is not even a number four in a big three. So Kevin Love is on a team right now with the Cavaliers who admittedly stink. He's a veteran, and he's getting paid about, just call it 400 grand, just for just for S's and G's, assume it's 400 grand a game. During a game, and we have video of it somewhere, but not on the show, especially if you're listening, it doesn't matter anyway. He's calling for the ball in what he thinks is a mismatch down low. In the NBA, when you want the ball, you put your hands up, you put your right hand up with your left hand against the body of your defender, and you call for the ball. It is the job of the point guard or shooting guard or whoever has the ball to get the ball into the post. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't work, you actually release from your defensive player, you rotate to the other side, swing the ball, and you try to reestablish position again. Well, Kevin Love decided when he didn't get the ball to throw up his hands and start walking with the defender still defending him out toward the three-point arc to confront the player in the middle of the play who didn't pass him the ball. Then he eventually gets the ball passed to him outside where the three-point line is. He turns around and whips it. And I mean whips it, not a chest pass, not a bounce pass. I'm talking a soccer pass when you're out of bounds and you get to hold the soccer ball and you put the soccer ball over your head and you whip it into play to start the action again. That is what Kevin Love did to one of his players who had to catch it at his ankles, throw up a three-point shot that completely missed. It was a joke. And then Kevin Love went on Instagram to say, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. I love my teammates. He actually went on Instagram to announce that he loved his teammates. Kevin Love, what I'm doing to you, you're suspended with cause. I'm not paying you your 400 grand. That is conduct detrimental to the team. There's a clause in the contract, and I'll take the grievance. I'll go all the way. That's how big a POS you are for showing up your teammates, for showing up your coach, and for being such a baby. That ought to cost you money much more than it costs you this amount of embarrassment. <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, they're never going to win in Cleveland without LeBron. They know that. Okay, so the next thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to do the pick of the day. And uh, we took a break. You should have built up some money. But pick of the day is the following. Uh, pick of the day is when we pick a team and then you either fade me if it's not the NBA or you actually bet exactly what I tell you to bet if it is the NBA. And so here's the pick. Joel Embiid, 76ers. Are you aware they've lost four in a row for the first time since 2017? And every time when this happens and Joel Embiid comes out and says something, and he came out and said, I am frustrated. I can't take this losing. It's getting to me. Then they're playing a team that's mediocre to bad, and it is Oklahoma City. I am trusting the process of my head in the NBA. I'm giving the seven, and we're back and better than ever. All right, wait to see. Wait to see is another uh, uh, a segment we do. And um, 
The way it's going to work is this. I'm going to tell you something every day, and then I promise you I'm going to get back to it. That's something that we do here because when I listen to the other talk shows and I listen to other shows that people do who are more famous than I am, for, for the moment at least, they never take accountability for anything they do, but I do. Well, we said that Dallas would change coaches, and they did. one nothing me. We said the Patriots were going to bring back Antonio Brown before the end of the season. Did they? No, I lost that one. We said Shermer wouldn't get fired till the end of the season. Wait to see. And he didn't, even though all you New Yorkers were calling for it. No way they were going to fire him during the season. One that I lost that I can't stand that I lost is the Los Angeles Angels. I said once they lost Cole that they would definitely sign one of Ryu, Keuchel, or Baumgartner. Those were three of the top free agent pitchers available. It is inexcusable to me that they did not sign any of those players. Now, granted, all those players got overpaid. I totally get that, actually. What's surprising to me, though, is that they didn't find a way to do better than Julio Tehran and a bunch of other mediocre stuff to go with Rendon and Trout. The Angels may have succeeded in losing me my weight to see, but they also succeeded in making sure they don't see October. So now I get to start a new year of weight to see, and this one's controversial. I have pulled the office here at CBS Sports HQ. There's not one person who agrees with me. This is what I love. This is when I'm at my best. When everybody says it can't happen. When everybody says that I'm completely out of my mind. When everyone says it's a fait accompli. Well, guess what? Tua, Tungavailoa, will not go in the top five of the draft. The Dolphins will not take them. They have made so many mistakes in their draft that they are gun shy. And if they draft Tua and he ends up hurt, guess what? It will not just be business. It will definitely be personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.